Good morning, everybody. I'm welcoming, welcoming many of you back from winter break, so I hope it was a good and fulfilling and fun time. Um, also, nobody say happy birthday to my wife, but it is her birthday, so just everyone know that. And yeah, just she gets very shy. So we're going to continue this morning. <laughs> she does. She's, she's very insulated sometimes. Introverted is the word I meant. Um, we're going to continue in our Evangelism Like Jesus series. We're going to start in the passage, uh, John 53. If you want to turn to now, it should be on the screen. It's also in the uh, blue Bibles in front of you. If someone wants to find it in there and yell out the page, I totally forgot to look. So it's going to be, again, John 7.53. And we're going to go through chapter 8. Not the whole of chapter 8. So, as we read that, if you could stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Father God, as we enter into a time of reflecting on your word and what it has to say to us in our situation, in our time today, I pray you would open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our ears to what you would have to say to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead, take a seat. Now, two introductory introductory matters. Uh, One, just by way of encouragement, this sermon would not be what it is if I did not talk about this with my small group on Tuesday. There are like five things I just flew right over my head, five things I just completely missed. And the questions and the discussion from my small group on Tuesday knocked some sense into me, frankly. So that's just an encouragement. That's a really beneficial thing to do with people who also call Jesus Lord and Savior to get together and talk about his word. So encouragement there. 
Second thing is you might have noticed something slightly odd in the text, depending on your translation. Some of you are going to see double brackets or some other symbol surrounding this passage. Uh, it might even, if you have the NIV, I think the NIV puts it in a footnote. And if you read the note there, it says something to the effect of this passage was most likely not in the original edition of John's Gospel. Now, this might, this might surface a question or two for you, perhaps most basically, how do, how do I know I can trust my Bible? So we should note that passages like this are rare exceptions in Scripture, and the few that do exist are noted, like you see here this morning. Now, while scholars debate whether this specific passage was in the first edition of John's Gospel, the church throughout history has largely agreed that this account is authentic to Jesus' life and ministry and was passed down throughout the generations. So much more to be said here, and we just we really can't just spend the time to talk about it. So if you have questions on this, and you want the details to be given a little bit more fairly of a shake, we can please talk to any of the pastors, Matt, Daniel, Ruben. If you want to chat to me, I'll be standing in the back later. Um, there's more to talk about, and it's good to talk about these things, so we encourage you to do that. But in summary, we trust the Holy Spirit of God led his church to include this text in Scripture— because it was inspired by God and correctly portrays the character of the gospel. That all being said, I want to step back through this story, take it beat by beat, and as I do that, I want to highlight and pull out a few specific points that are going to be important for us as we think about this passage in terms of how we do evangelism like Jesus. So, to begin, we see that Jesus has spent some time at the Mount of Olives in silence and prayer. And this is, I'm already going to stop and just note this for a second, that this is important. Jesus' life of ministry was accomplished out of the overflow of his personal relationship with his Father. And if you haven't established rhythms of prayer and devotion like Jesus did, you haven't accepted the invitation to a life of powerful ministry. It's God's desire to pour into you so that you can pour into the people that he has put in your life. He calls all of us to the ministry of the gospel. We're all called to go and make disciples. Some of you might know that I left seminary a while back. And the primary reason for that was that I was confronted with the fact that my personal relationship with God was anemic. It didn't have nearly as much in it as I needed it to as it needed to for me to be the person I'm called to be. I didn't really know what it looked like to love God with my heart. I could love him with my hands and my mind just fine, but my heart always seemed to be dragged along. I was convicted that it's important to cultivate this heart for Jesus more so than it was at that time to cultivate my mind. And as I look back over the last two years since me and my wife made that decision— I think that it's been time well spent. I've seen my loves reordered. I've seen my desires reshaped. But again, it took two years. And the work is still ongoing, believe, believe me. So I'm inviting all of you this morning to consider what you can do to follow hard after God so that your ministry can be fueled by the fire of your personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, some examples of that might include prayer, fasting, the reading of scripture, Sabbath rest. These are all some of the things that fuel the Jesus as he went about his life. And if they're good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for me. So, 
Turning back to the text now, we see that, again, this scene as a, you know, repeated pattern we'll see throughout this series. This scene is not an intentional stop on Jesus' ministry itinerary. He spends time in prayer, he goes to the temple, and his main thing is he wants to teach. He's there to teach, and eventually he's interrupted. He's in the middle of his teaching when these Pharisees come to him with a woman. This woman's been caught in adultery, and they bring her into the middle of this great crowd and say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And it's important to note that while they're being troublemakers, right, they're not wrong. This is what the law says. Exodus 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 2 through 17, accounts the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai, and the seventh is, do not commit adultery. Leviticus 20, 10 through 16, contains a whole series of variations on that commandment, all of which, or most of which, the punishment is death. And then Deuteronomy 22 repeats many of these. So they're right. The punishment for this sin, for her sin according to the law, is death. And they knew that Jesus knew this as well. So this is yet another case, again, another repeated pattern of the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. After quoting the law, they say to him, so what do you say? The text also says that they said this so to test him so they might have some charge to bring against him. They're asking him to appeal to his own authority. Something that could have been considered blasphemous, right? Jesus has done this before. Think about places like the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard it said, and then he repeats something from the law, and then he, then he follow us, follows up and says, but I say to you, right, implying, on my authority, I say this. So now if the Pharisees could catch Jesus in a situation where he is contradicting the law on his own authority, they'd have an open and shut case of blasphemy, and they could convict him pretty surely. So that's their plan here. So just take a second to put yourself in Jesus' shoes and his sandals, if you would, He's in the middle of teaching. He's in the middle of something, and a crowd of people who desperately need to hear this good news are his audience, right? Then these guys come in, making a scene, trying to catch him in his own words. And at this point, it's important to note, and this is one of the things that came out in my conversation with my tribe, it's not just the Pharisees that he needs to deal with here. If you remember, kind of jumping forward a bit, When Jesus writes with his finger and the whole crowd disperses, it's the whole crowd. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the Pharisees and a few others. It's the whole crowd. Jesus is left alone with this woman. So why would the crowd leave? Maybe they got bored. That's possible. But this wasn't a long interaction, so I don't know why that would be the case. The most likely reading here is that the Pharisees had worked this crowd up into a mob and the whole crowd was ready to stone this woman. I mean, we've seen this before, haven't we? I mean, most markedly on Good Friday, when the Pharisees did the same thing, they riled up a crowd and that same crowd killed Jesus. So this isn't without precedent in the scriptures. So in this moment, Jesus is against 
against maybe a, a strong word. He's in the midst of a mob. And mobs are scary things. They inspire fear, especially if you're in the middle of one, right? So what's Jesus' response? He has a few options here. He could give up. He could walk away. He could remove his presence, right? We're talking presence, grace, and truth in this series. He could remove his presence. He could write up this crowd as too angry or too worked up to hear what he has to say. Or he could intensify his presence. He could stand firmly and fight. He could hold his ground and he could give a verbose and powerful defense of truth, no doubt, further inflaming his audience. So some of the potential neuroscientists in the room will forgive me for simplifying a really complex idea, but we could generally classify these two options as the fight-or-flight response. The amygdala, which is a part of our brain kind of right here in the the brainstem, is responsible for this response, and it has the tendency to hijack the part of our brain that does reasoning and, you know, moral judgment and all the things that are needed for wisdom. When the amygdala, again, hijacks this, the response can be very helpful in situations of stress, like if you're trying not to get hit by a bus, it's a really good response to have. But it's not a super helpful response in a situation like this, specifically in evangelism. Anger and fear have a clouding effect on judgment and reasoning. And it goes both ways, right? Both ways. The angrier the mob gets, the less they'll be able to see the situation reasonably less they'll be able to hear Jesus' words here. And the more scared the person surrounded by the mob is, less likely they're going to make sound judgments on how to converse with the mob. And Jesus knows, as inconvenient as it is in this moment, that these loud and antagonistic people need the gospel too. He seeks to impart truth to this crowd, but knows that to respond with anger and indignation, however justified and however righteous would obscure his message. So he keeps his cool. He doesn't go out of his way to get them angry. And Jesus chooses a different approach in this situation. He maintains his presence without intensifying it. He's actually very non-confrontational here. He takes an indirect, gracious, very dramatic, frankly, route of imparting truth. He stoops down and he begins to write in the sand with his finger. Now, there's a situation, a um, more like recent situation, that I've seen this done really well. I don't know if any of you have heard of John Lennox, maybe. He's an uh, ma- Oxford mathematician. Uh, he's a brilliant guy, you know, like nth-level smart. And he's also an apologist for the Christian faith. You know, just true and ardent believer, fantastic preacher, honestly. And he has a couple debates with all of the angriest people that you can imagine, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and if you watch those, his demeanor is just so laid back, so calm, so peaceful, and just kind. And if he doesn't, he could not say a word and he would win those debates because these people are so angry at him for some reason, and he is just so kind and gracious and loving to them, yet he stands as firm as one can on the grounding of truth 
And he doesn't let them say nonsense. He debates, he fights back, but he does so with such kind and gracious language. Now, I mean, personally, I'm non-confrontational to an unhealthy degree. Uh, last, I think it was last week, I went into a coffee shop for a sandwich, and I went to, uh, on the kiosk, put in a custom tip. Um, and very helpfully, the machine added the decibel points for me. I didn't know this, so I ended up paying, I think, a $15 tip on a $15 sandwich or something like that. And I walked out having paid $30-ish for a sandwich because I didn't want to confront the cashier for the mistake I had made. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm acknowledging my bias here, right? I'm just by nature non-confrontational. That being said, there are times and situations where there's wisdom in being non-confrontational. It's not going to be every situation, but I think a lot of them, this is going to be the best route. I think it's modeled by Jesus here. Instead of directly confronting the Pharisees, he stoops down and he writes in his finger, in the sand with his finger. Now, there's a lot left to the imagination here. We don't know what he writes. And again, if you want to talk about it, there's some really awesome things that have been proposed throughout the years by church historians and authors and philosophers. It's a really interesting conversation. But if we go back to the text just for a moment, it actually doesn't seem to be all that important exactly what he writes. I'm going to start back in verse 6 here. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. So while what Jesus writes might be reinforcing what he said, it's primarily what he said that has an effect on these people. Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they need no further condemnation. One by one they leave as these words wedge their way into their souls, right? Jesus' words here are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12. So at this point, I'd like to take a step back from the text. I'd like to take a moment and distill what we've seen and what we've learned into a few principles that we can take and apply in our daily ministry of evangelism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's on display here is Jesus dealing with people who are hostile, who are angry, and who are antagonistic. It's a mob that's ready and willing to kill this woman. And I pray we don't find ourselves often in directly comparable situations today, but let's be honest, all of us have a little bit of an idea what a mob looks like nowadays, right? Whether it's online or in real life, we all have some kind of understanding of what that is. Mobs are angry. They're sure they're right. They never call themselves mobs, and they're ready to fight. And this gets to the first of the three principles I wanted to talk about this morning. I'll say this, and please listen carefully and don't 
hear something I'm not saying. Fighting is as much a response to fear as running away. And that sounds like I'm against fighting, but I'm not. I'm 100% for fighting when the Word of God tells us to fight. I'm 100% for running away when the Word of God tells us to run away. And I'm 100% for fear, but fear of the Lord, but not fear of the world, not fear of man, not fear of governments or loss of social influence or persecution. Take a moment and just sit with that. What are you afraid of when it comes to evangelism, specifically to those who are antagonistic to the message? Are you afraid of being made fun of? Losing your status or your friends? Are you, be, are you afraid of being seen as weird? Being chastised? Are you be afraid of being isolated and alone in the dark? I was... Um, pretty afraid of the dark when I was a kid, and my mom and my dad taught me a, the first scripture verse I ever memorized, right? I was like probably seven, maybe seven, don't know for sure, but they taught me this verse to help me get over my fear of the dark, and it's Second Timothy 1, 7, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. The King James Version says a sound mind. So that's the one that's engraved up here. Power, love, self-control. These should characterize our witness. When you let fear drive you, you have no power. Because power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. When you let fear drive you, you have no capacity for love. When you let fear drive you, you have no self-control. Now, this is not the spirit that God has given to us. Instead, he says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. In the world, you have, will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our God's a mighty fortress. So we have every Motivation to reject the spirit of fear and to embrace the spirit of God. The spirit of God has another job, and it's frankly not one we talk about as much as I think we should. But it's extremely relevant to this story in our next principle, principle number two here. When Jesus speaks of the coming spirit of God in John 16, he says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I think we get it in our heads sometimes that it's our job to make the world know it has sinned. We talk of truth and we think it's our job to present the truth in such a way that people are completely shut down and can offer no response. It's important, hear me, it's important to defend the truth of God in the public square. That's an important thing. That's what John Lennox does, and I love him for it. But we need to be careful, because it can very quickly cross a line, and we can start trying to do the Spirit's job of conviction pretty quickly. 
And while it can be quoted in bad faith by people who don't really understand the scriptures, Jesus did say this in Matthew 7, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, Jesus is a great example of this in this passage. He doesn't give a verbose condemnation. He doesn't offer a biting critique. He simply redirects their minds to the law, to the standard that they are enforcing. Then the Spirit works to show them where they are in violation of the law themselves, where they have sinned and where they, why they are not in the position to be throwing stones. Now there are times when Jesus spends a long time ripping into the Pharisees, and it's almost always the Pharisees. And he can do that. He's Jesus. And he says in John 5.22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Yet Jesus, who has the authority to judge often in his ministry on earth, takes the non-confrontational approach. We see here, he stands his ground, he in invites the Pharisees and the crowd to reconsider based on some flaw in their position or in their hearts. This is a subtle infusion of truth and one that starts where the other is and not where they should be. And there's a problem here when we try and apply this story directly to our culture. Very few people outside of the church have any understanding of biblical teaching, and those who do usually have some caricatured version of it. They don't accept the same standards we accept. So how would we expect them to respond this way if we invoke the law? Paul has some wisdom on this in Romans 2, 14 through 16, and it's basically what we ground this third principle in. I'll read that for us. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. What Paul's saying here is that there's something fundamental in human nature that will create something very similar to the law, even in the law's absence. Everyone, look around at the the people you see in the world. Everyone has their own moral standards, their own convictions, their own feelings, and those not being based on God's truth will be filled with contradictions and falsehood. Whether you get your standard from culture or from your group identity or from your internal moral compass, if it's not based in something eternal and immovable, it's shaky. It's temporary. It's unreliable. Groups split. Cultures change. You change. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I would say if we're thinking of how we do evangelism like Jesus, in this moment, this cultural and temporal moment in time, I would suggest it looks like this. 
Number one, ask questions. Understand their position as thoroughly as possible. Don't Make it, don't misrepresent or mischaracterize their arguments. Don't leave stuff out just to make them look bad. No, hear their arguments. Try and trace the logic and really hear them. Understand where they're coming from. And when you take the time to do that, you will identify a crack or a hole. And when you inevitably find something like that, this is step number two, ask them about that hey, you know, I, I'm hearing you talk and you say this thing over here, but then it doesn't seem to line up with what you do over here or what you say over here. Can you, can you help me understand why that's the case? If they're receptive, that question will drive a wedge in between them and their convictions, and that is the space where the Spirit works. This is step number three. Let the light in. Your question will... Bring up questions of their own. The songwriter Leonard Cohen once said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I don't think it's any different here. When we think about how we use use truth in our witness, I think it's helpful to contrast a rifle with a life raft. Let's say that we're all in the midst of the ocean waiting to be saved from the shipwreck of life. We who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ have been offered a life raft. The truth of the gospel that's going to sustain us and keep us afloat until we're rescued in the end. And we look around and we see all the other people from the shipwreck and they're on their own life rafts but they're full of holes. They're losing air and gaining water really quickly. Our job is not to pull out our rifle of truth and start shooting more holes. Our job is to invite them over, help them realize their raft is sinking, and invite them onto ours. Something done in close proximity, not in the distance, right? I want to go back to the story for a moment because there's a really good part that we haven't gotten to yet. The crowd has disappeared. The Pharisees are gone. Jesus is left alone with this woman. Let me just read the passage again so it's fresh. And by the way, he says woman here. That can sound super derogatory the way we talk nowadays. Like, woman? Like, that's not what he's saying. It's the same term he uses when he addresses his mother in John 3. It's, it's very loving and respectful and tender. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the definition of beautiful, but it begs a question. Is this an instance of Jesus not keeping the law? In Matthew 5, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So is Jesus making an exception to his own rule? No. It depends on what you understand the word fulfill to mean. There's a lot of ways you can talk about that word fulfill, but I'm going to propose to you this morning that the way you get the biggest picture, the whole picture, is to say that something has fulfilled its purpose. So what's the purpose of the law? We talked about this, like, I think it's like a year ago now in our terror talks on the law in the, when we were doing our Hebrew series. And again, big conversation, lots to talk about. You can talk later if you'd like. I'm going to summarize the purpose of the law in this way. The purpose of the law was to set God's people apart so that his presence could dwell with them. Good? doesn't work when the Israeli people keep breaking the law, which they do over and over. They do so, so much that they're now unrecognizable from the nations around them, so God sends them into exile to live with those nations. If you want to look like them, go be with them, he says. And eventually he restores a remnant of those people to hit their homeland, and they learned all the wrong lessons. They say... If we had just kept all of the commandments of the law, we never would have gone into exile. So they double down on legalism. They double down on following all the laws, so much so, they forget the purpose of the law. To be in the presence of God, to come near to him. They forget that purpose so effectively, they forget that purpose. That when God comes and is in their presence, in the person of Jesus Christ, they cannot recognize him. They've been focused on their own self-righteousness, on their own standards. Seems like a God-given standard can even be twisted by men and women, right? So Jesus, the author of the law, the one who's been given authority to judge all creation, the incarnate God, is standing alone with this woman. And he says to her something that he couldn't say with the others around because they didn't recognize him. But this woman calls him Lord. To the others, he was just a teacher. And you can probably guess they had some kind of mocking tone in their voice when they said teacher, right? But this woman looks at her and looks at Jesus and says, Lord. She recognizes him. And he says to her, essentially, this is it. I'm here. This is the purpose of the law fulfilled. The presence of God is with you here now. I am with you here now, and I don't condemn you. The only one who had the authority to do it doesn't. Bruce Milne who is a commentator in the Bible Speaks Today series. He says this so well, and I'm going to quote him, if you don't mind. We need to declare tirelessly the reality of God's forgiving grace. 
It's surely a remarkable fact that he who is the embodiment of divine holiness, the I am who met the people of God on Sinai in fire and thunder, should say to a self-confessed sinner with the guilt of broken commandments heavy on her conscience, neither do I condemn you. Here is the miracle of the grace of God. There is no greater wonder than this. The turning of water into wine, the healing of the dying lad by a word, the feeding of the 5,000, and more with a snack lunch, the walking on a storm-tossed sea. None of these, nor all of them together, can compare with this, that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. In this sentence, and in, in the heart of mercy which lay behind it, is all our hope and all our salvation forever. That's one thing not to condemn someone. It is another thing to forgive them. And Jesus intended to forgive this woman. It was his whole life's mission. In church, it's his whole life's mission to forgive you this morning. It's what he came to do. And this forgiveness isn't the simple forgiveness that you utter in childhood when your parents tell you to say, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. And then someone says, I'm forgiven. I forgive you. That's fine. Let's go play. That's not what this is. It was a debt that needed to be paid. Each one of us has racked up immense moral debt for failing to live up to God's perfect standard. The consequence of that is death. Yet Jesus, the only one who was perfect, the only one who did live up to that perfect standard, took all our imperfectness on himself. And holding all that, he suffered the consequence for it all. He died so that we wouldn't have to. And his death on the cross, our debt, a debt that we had no hope of removing ourselves as paid. And death yet had no power over him. And he rose again after three days and ascended to the throne in heaven where he sits now inviting us into the abundance of life without debt. Eternity with him. So what does this mean for evangelism? Right? This is our message church. This is our life raft. This is the gospel. This is what we share with those who are tired and weary from trying to live life on a standard of perfection that they can never seem to meet. We say to them, he does not condemn you. If you would only go to him and call him Lord. This It's the only thing that can save souls. This is the only thing that can transform communities. This is the only thing that can bring souls dead in their sin back to life, and it's the only thing that can bring peace on earth. We should not be ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God to save anyone who believes. You might be sitting here this morning and... I just want to ask you, do you know, like know, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of grace? And you might be sitting here thinking, that's for other people, not for me. Nope. No, it's for you. Know 
that the creator of the universe, the one who made you, loves you, whatever you have done, he forgives you. He's the only source of life, the only source of hope in the changing world, the only source of joy in darkness, and the only source of peace in a world that seems so desperate to tear itself apart. Isn't your life raft losing air? Is it taking on water? The love of grace, the love and grace of Jesus always has room for you. For those of us this morning that know that love and that grace, those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, we spend time every week here to celebrate and remember that grace. When we take communion, we remember that forgiveness is not cheap. It comes at a cost. Jesus died on the cross, and his blood poured out and his body broken. That happened so that we can be severed from our sin, be free from its consequence, and walk an everlasting life. Jesus took that consequence on himself. He drank fully from the cup of wrath so that we can drink in the cup of blessings forever. Like bread, his spirit sustains us and keeps us alive. It empowers us to do what we need to do. Let's prepare our hearts for that moment. We're going to enter into prayer. Father God, we thank you that your word is a firm foundation. In it and all that you've given us, we have all we need to feel confident, to feel assured, and to feel at peace. You've asked us not to be afraid. Father, I pray your spirit would fill your people this morning and give them the sense not of fear, not of anxiety, not of worry, but of peace. It's overwhelming peace. We thank you for the cross and how that peace was won. I pray we'd go with your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.